0: This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive. And there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. Your birth changed your mother permanently. It reconfigured her brain in ways that can tell a scientist that she's a mother just from looking at a brain scan. And you left behind cells that colonize your mother's organs, skin, and bones. A mother's body is like her living room, strewn with kid castoffs and debris, writes science journalist Abigail Tucker in her new book, Mom Genes, Inside the New Science of Our Ancient Maternal Instinct. It's partly an investigation of how mothers are made, and it's partly a memoir of her own motherhood experiences. Abigail Tucker has four children, and she is with me now. Hi, thanks for taking time today. Thanks so much, Julie. As we talk, do you have any idea where the cells left behind by your four kids are in your body or what they're up to?
1: I I can only imagine. And I I, um, read um, that you know, they can even cross the, the barrier in, into your brain. So you basically, you if you think that you can't get your kids out of your head, that may be because they are literally colonizing your uh, the tissue of your brain. And I, in the course of reporting the book, one of the neatest things that I got to do was go to this laboratory at um, Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, where they study um, Uh, this fetal microchimerism, these uh, baby cells that um, go into the hearts of mothers and There's some uh, promising research coming out of that lab that shows that these cells may have like a protective function and help um, mother's hearts heal after events like heart attacks that may happen, you know, around the time of pregnancy or just after. So I just thought that was so interesting because, you know, as mothers, it's like you give, give, give. But there is, you know, research suggesting that these little cells that we have from our kids and our bodies may help us in some way. Yeah, but
0: it's not a hostile takeover. that's really interesting.
1: <laughs> and these cells stick
0: around uh, longer than just the the immediate aftermath of a birth.
1: Yes. So these cells cro- cross the placenta into the bloodstream of the mother, and they're kind of hanging out there in an undifferentiated form. But then, uh, once they decide to go to the you know the thyroid or the the lungs or the skin or whichever body part, they become part of that tissue and embed there permanently. Um, to the extent that if you do an autopsy of a um, of a woman, you can of an older woman, you can find you know the cells of a baby that she might have had uh, fifty years before. And what's interesting is that this research, a lot of it is um, centered on mothers of sons because that the Y chromosome is sort of the, the tell in these cases when they're looking for this stuff. But it's presumably the case for you know mothers of daughters as well.
0: Your last. Book was a New York Times bestseller, Abigail Tucker, and it was about house cats and how <laughs> and how uh, how how we domesticated them or they domesticated us. <laughs> um, it's called "The Lion in the Living Room." What prompted you to turn your attention to mothers and and, and the experience of motherhood?
1: Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, you know, there are when I was reporting "The Lion in the Living Room," one of the conclusions that I came to was that one reason that house cats have had this improbable degree of global success without, you know, laying eggs or doing work for us or protecting our houses or doing much for us. <laughs> one reason that they've done so well is that they they have this uncanny resemblance to infants. And um, humans are kind of wired to drink in this, um, what they call uh, baby releaser features. These really big eyes, this little nose, this little mouth. Cats actually look a lot more like infants than than dogs do. So that's one One um, common thread. And the other common thread is that the line in the living room was about this brain change that accompanies um, domestication, basically, that happened over 10,000 years in CATS. And the shrinkage of these fear and flight systems of cats' brains that allowed them to sort of inch closer and closer into our houses until we, you know, found them under our couch one day. Um, Mom jeans is also about a brain change fundamentally, but it's a brain change that takes place over the course of nine or ten months instead of ten thousand years, and the ways that women's um, and you know parents' minds change during. Um, childbirth and uh, and afterwards
0: describe describe what the evidence is that humans are wired to like babies baby faces I know I I know I have known people who don't like children that much (laughs) so this must not be a universal instinct what do we know about it
1: yeah. So, I mean, it's all relative, right? In um, Humans are what's called an alloparental species. So that means that we have some kind of natural caregiving um, propensities towards each other's young. Hmm. And sort of for comparison's sake, if, you know, you take another kind of animal, um, like, you know, say a, 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 a lion or, you know, a lot of different kinds of the the beasts you might meet in nature, if they meet a baby, that's not related to them, that they don't know they're, you know, they're, they're apt to, to eat it. <laughs> so, sometimes, um, the, uh, the way we know that humans have this, um, this cross species kind of affinity for babies is that, you know, the scientists will show pictures of babies in lab tests and, um, even the brains of non-parents kind of perk up for these images, or Mm. sometimes they'll play baby cries in a way that's, um, that's unusual. They react to sort of infant cries differently than similarly toned sounds. Basically that's kind of scientists think because we're this hyper-social species that is designed to look out for each other. That said, you know, when, um, Uh, people transition to parenthood um, through whatever means, um, their brains change and they have deeper reactions and different reactions to to these cues.
0: So let's dive into that a bit, because um, some of the most interesting, well, there's a lot of really interesting facts in this book, but the whole section where you look at the the instinct and the the um the desire to protect and care for an infant and sort of how it becomes the center of a mother's world and also to to some extent a father's world if he's willing to be engaged and that this can happen even even for someone who has not had who has not given birth to that child right a uh, it could it could be a an aunt or it could be a Um, an adoptive mother, that that still some of those brain changes happen? Describe what those changes are and how it's possible that that could happen if you haven't physiologically given birth to that child.
1: Exactly. So basically, you know, what I learned, I I had no idea about any of this after having four kids, but I basically learned that in a lab, there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of, um, make a mother on, on short notice. And one way that you can do it is by injecting her with, um, certain cocktails of, of hormones and, um, the, the virgin female rat who wasn't a mother before will, um, become, um, Will start to act maternal. And that acting maternal means doing things like retrieving babies instead of running away from them. So the she might interesting... have
0: so 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 previous to this cocktail yes, exactly. injection, she had no interest in these baby rats. They, right. that's, they inject that's her.
1: <laughs> the perfect the perfect example of the non-alloparental um animal, you know, that a female rat will like run, t- who hasn't had uh, babies yet, will run away terrified from the sound of pup calls. <laughs> um, whereas it's for a bi- for a biological mother, it's the opposite. It's like a siren song for her. She'll like rush to the aid of these um, inaudibly to us, but screaming pups. Um, so, but, so that's one way you can just kind of make a mom through, you know, some fancy chemical cocktails. But the the other interesting thing is that you're able, they're able to coax out this maternal behavior in another way. And that's through exposure to, um, to pups. So basically, if you take a virgin female, and you put her into um, an environment where there's pups, Um, And, you know, she doesn't, she's not allowed to run away and um, she's not allowed to, you know, to, to, to beat up on any pups So she just is kind of hanging out there for a week or so her behavior starts to change. And she starts to um, exhibit these maternal behaviors um, towards, uh, towards the pups. And that's kind of, I kind of thinking, think of it as a form of reverse engineering and um, scientists can look into the brains of these mothers to be these these um these virgin rats who become sensitized through pup exposure and they can see actual changes in in the brains of um of the mothers of the of the of the of the, of the that resemble mothers. Um, it's interesting though because I hadn't realized before writing this that that adoption of unrelated young is is a vi- mostly a, a human only phenomenon. Um, and so it's hard to kind of like draw he- sweeping comparisons. Basically, these experiments that we're talking about in the lab wouldn't happen in nature for rats, but it's possible that humans, you know, who come to love children through other ways than giving birth to them may go through this same kind of after the fact brain change where meeting the kid um, changes your brain, whereas biological mothers are hormonally primed. To meet their kid. Are their you brain. talking about
0: change, like actual changing the brain and physical is it connections that are made physical changes that happen in the size of the brain?
1: Yeah they're in um in the rats um the um, my understanding is that there's a change in where receptors um, for certain kinds of uh, chemicals like mm-hmm. prolactin are in the brain, and you might find more of those, say, in an animal that's been sensitized by pup exposure. One of the changes
0: um, you describe, it seems like for mothers, and is this only for um, biological mothers? That a baby, having a baby, like. Hijacks her reward center in her brain?
1: Yeah, so this is all related to this. um, There's this thing called the maternal circuit um, in uh, rat moms. And the reason that we keep obsessing over rat moms is because these are ancient brain systems. And the the idea and the hope is that they're conserved across mammals. So that by studying these simple um, organisms like rats, we can come to conclusions or get insights, I should say, not come to conclusions about what might be going on in human moms. And there's this really deep down part of the brain called um, the medial preoptic area that's involved in the um, uptake of a lot of different kinds of sensory cues. And um, it's also... Connected to um, this um, other area that's related to um, reward. And so that area, the MPOA, the and the reward center are kind of in cahoots in the maternal brain. And the reason that they know that this is so important is that you can, the rat moms are so amazing, you can do anything to them. Basically, you can take away their ability to see their pups or hear their pups. And um, they'll still be mothers to their pups. But if you um, disable this deep down area, the medial preoptic area, they'll suddenly stop caring about their pups and they'll Mm -hmm. go back to caring about Charleston chews and fruit loops and the things that they, they previously preferred um, Mm -hmm. to, to pups. There's these, you know, talk about like crystallizing what reward is or these really famous early experiment where this researcher put a bunch of new rat moms in a, in a cage and basically gave them a chance to push levers, one which would deliver food and which one which would deliver pups. And um, they uh, pushed the the pup lever like constantly one of the rat moms pushed the pup lever like 600 and something times in in four hours so many times that the 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 human experimenter basically threw up his hands and had to quit he was he she wasn't you know getting tired and I think she it was just wants like to she, be
0: she just wants to be like inundated it,
1: it was just so <laughs> she was like a pup avalanche and I think like For her, too, she was having to like the pups would roll down the chute and he'd have to she'd have to drag them a distance that would be like a a far distance for for a rat. So Hmm. um, basically, that's a good illustration of this um, sort of intangible thing where suddenly like babies trump Charleston shoes or, um, you know, circus peanuts or these other funny treats they use on the rats.
0: And this and, and that that is that the maternal instinct
1: yeah, I think that the the maternal instinct is a sort of imperfect term um, because it implies some sort of knowledge <laughs> that is in new parents. Uh, you know, many people will confess if you really you know get down to it with them is sadly lacking. It's not the maternal instinct in terms of how to a, care for the exactly. child. Exactly, like okay. there's no. Um, conveniently uploaded encyclopedia that comes into your brain in the delivery room it's more um, like a the awake a, one way to say it is a sense it's a sensitization to um baby cues it's it's the awakening of a sort of core pro baby motive you could call it like a mm-hmm. motive or a drive um, And one scientist used this really interesting term, um, unmasking, that there was always sort of the maternal ingredients there in your brain somehow, but um, it took sort of this little nudge, whether it was, you know, going through pregnancy, um, childbirth and lactation, or going through this very... um, Prolonged exposure to infants that cause that circuitry to kindle and grow in your brain. It's like a buried seed almost, mm. this instinct. Mm.
0: Speaking with Abigail Tucker, who is a science journalist and New York Times bestselling author, her latest book is Mom Genes, Inside the New Science of Our Ancient Maternal Instinct. This is Top of Mind. We have to take a very quick break as we're honoring Mothers and Mother's Day. When we come back, we'll dive into the less... Um, happy, warm, fuzzy, rainbow side of the changes that take place for a mother um, at the birth of a child when she becomes a mother, and some of what the science tells us about that, and, and how to cope with things like postpartum depression, why, why that even happens. I'm Julie Rose. Stay with us. I'm Julie Rose. The conversations in today's episode come from the Top of Mind Archive, Abigail Tucker is a science journalist. Her new book is Mom Genes, Inside the New Science of Our Ancient Maternal Instinct. We've talked about some of the protective uh, changes that can happen to a mother's body um, and, and the ways in which her mind becomes her uh, her brain becomes re- rewired to some extent to care for a child. Um but the changes are not all 100 percent positive all the time. <laughs> and you, Abigail Tucker, talk pretty frankly in the book about some of the challenges you experienced, both in, in giving birth to your children and in the, the postpartum period of, uh, of your four children. Is there one of your kids in particular that really prompted you to explore this subject for the book?
1: Well, I guess, you know, I I was prompted to, to write about it after I had my third child, um, which was my my son. And that was a very different pregnancy, I think, in a lot of eye-opening ways. It was um, my first boy, which was interesting and, and, and sort of more different than I had thought it would be. Um, the other thing that happened was that I, I had some uh, postpartum depression during that pregnancy, which was weird because I had never had this in previous two pregnancies, and I it was intriguing to me because it made me see. Like sometimes I think we think of moms as just being kind of like on autopilot or sort of like these goofy robots set on mom mode or something. Mm-hmm. But actually, moms are like growing and changing all the time, and I, that's part of what fascinated me about this story. That you know, we're both really, like, we have a simple thing at our core, which is that we love our kids, but we're also really complicated. And we're really very much also products of our environments. And so I sort of started thinking about what are the some of the hidden forces that, you know, not just make us moms who have a lot in common with each other, but you know, and also in common with like orca moms and rat moms and these other different fun types of mammal moms, but I'm also interested in sort of what makes one mom different from another and one pregnancy from one, one mom different from her next pregnancy. Mm.
0: Um, mild to serious depression is incredibly common in, in mo- new mothers. and And you do address some possible scientific theories. Can you explain what you learned about how mothers have a different tolerance for discomfort and a sort of suppressed reaction to environmental stress after birth, after they give birth.
1: Yeah. So this idea of this um, really dramatic uptick in um, women's mental health problems around the time of birth, and it's the classic postpartum depression and baby blue stuff, but also mm-hmm. stuff like obsessive compulsive disorder and um, even stuff, even more serious stuff like bipolar um, disorder um, these this sudden um, spike in these symptoms is some of the best most compelling evidence that childbirth is a process of the mind as well and um, you know the theories behind what is going on with postpartum depression are, kind of, you know, one reason that we're, we need to study the maternal mind right now is that, you know, people's health and health is at stake here. And we don't really understand what's going on with this disease. Like our tools to treat it are still primitive. This is a big area of study, but there are some theories that In every pregnant mother, there is, I mean, in every, every mother who's uh, gives birth, um, there's a sort of natural dampening of the stress responses. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that's like, if you uh, scientists can test this by like, if you stick a pregnant lady's hand in a bucket of ice water, she doesn't get as stressed out as, you know, somebody who's not pregnant. Um, There's this kind of cooling of the, of the, um, of anxiety. And the idea is that this dampening is meant to kind of facilitate um, what would be sort of childcare back in the day. You know, whenever we evolved, however many millions ago, millions of years ago, where we would be like needing to sort of stay safe and quiet with a baby and sort of be alert but also, you know, calm. Um, this calm, this underlying calm is also a feature of um, maternal aggression, which I've learned is like everybody's favorite topic um, when it comes to moms, you know, angry moms who attack there's that great video out from the, the, um, can't remember which, uh, national park, but, um, a jogger ran and ran across a mountain lion mom and her cubs mountain lion mom chased him back up the trail for like five minutes. It was terrifying, but that, you know, scientists would likely call that like lactational aggression. These animals that would normally avoid humans are kind of, um, have their system suppressed. And so there's an idea that this natural adaptive, um, slight dampening or depression might snowball into something else um, in certain circumstances. and A dampening of
0: emotion in in, in general or a a sense of despair or disconnectedness.
1: Exactly. And there's even more sort of, uh, you know, freaky theories about what that Hmm. could mean in terms of, um, you know, really severe postpartum depression or postpartum psychosis, if the environment is sending signals to a mom that, you know, things aren't going well, this isn't right, it could be like a signal to cut ties and, and, and carry on elsewhere, which is really upsetting to think about mm. as a mom, but also interesting to contemplate from, you know, a more objective perspective. That's just one theory about what postpartum depression evolved to be.
0: Did understanding that help you in any way to cope with the mental and emotional toll of, of having your fourth child.
1: You know, I, I, yes and no. I I think that it's important not to, if people have postpartum depression, it's important not to blame yourself and say, oh, you know, like I, there was something I could have done to stave this off or, you know, my, I'm turning into a horrible monster here. There's so much at play. There's genetic, strong genetic components to depression of different kinds. And in my case, I went on to have a fourth pregnancy, actually, a pandemic baby, which Mm. was, you know, talk about environmental stress shaping moms, um, that that was pretty extreme. But I honestly felt that the research, knowing the research about how these stresses could impact me, um, made me a little bit better able to cope with them. So for example, with my son's pregnancy, one of the big problems was that, I, ha- well, small, you know, problems again, outside of my control, there's some research showing that, um, boys, um, mothers of boys are slightly more prone to get postpartum depression. So that was out of my control. Something was slightly more inside my control was the fact that we just moved to a new state and I didn't have like my girlfriends around. And Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that having a strong social network can be really protective against postpartum depression. So things like that, I would sort of you know, be on the lookout not to do for my fourth pregnancy. Like, you know, I feel like there's this rush to get all kinds of crazy stuff done before you have a baby. But, you know, there's scientists who I've talked to who have said that, you know, it's possible that you should slow down, like right before you're about to give birth and give your body that that feeling of, you know, preparedness and calm, like a researcher, one of these really great researchers who I talked to, Um, over the course of the book was pregnant at the time. And she explained to me that she was going to start her maternity leave a month before her due date, because she felt that was like a really developmentally important time. And I just sort of thought, you know, here we are trying to finally make these adjustments to our national policy to allow women to have the 12 minimum weeks of paid maternity leave that they need. You know, it would be great if there was a little bit even more flexibility built in there and, you know, an extra couple of weeks that could kick in before you have the baby and you could start the clock when when you wanted to. And I do think that things like that, having that sense of control and agency can be really good for, for moms, I think.
0: I'm speaking with Abigail Tucker, who's a science journalist and author of the new book Mom Genes, Inside the New Science of Our Ancient Maternal Instinct. So, the book it talks a lot about the interesting science, what we what we do, and a lot of what we just do not know about how becoming a mother changes a mother's body and her mind. Um, but there's also a lot in your book towards the end about the cultural and social aspects of motherhood that um, can either help or hinder uh, that transition and 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 how best to support mothers so that they can, Be healthy, but also do the best for their children. Right. Um, Tell me about something that you learned about that happens in another culture or another species (laughs) where you were like, wow, that would have made all the difference for me when I was having my babies.
1: Well, you know, we are talking about the importance of the signals that you're sent by your environment and your, your um, fellow humans, basically, and this idea that it's really important to show other moms that you care for them, because that's how they're kind of built to sort of assess cues of social support. There's some countries like um, Finland, where um, every mom gets this huge box of really cool, um, baby goodies from the government. And, um, this is kind of like takes a little bit of pressure off of her to, you know, to, to spend her time obsessing about her baby registry, but it's also just kind of a really cool signal that, you know, somebody out there somewhere cares about Mm. this person and, and the baby, then other governments take it even further. And, um, for the Dutch, there's this, uh, neat kind of, um, baby nurse where you can, um, get like a trained professional to come home with you for, um, just a couple, for a couple of weeks after you have a baby. And that's, and that's just like an extra pair of helping hands to do stuff from, you know, helping out with older kids or making dinner or, you know, dealing with newborn care if you're a new mother. And I Wait, was it's like, a, it's like a, Yeah. So that's like
0: a government funded live in nanny for the first couple of weeks kind
1: of. of a baby. <laughs> yeah, you have to pay like a very small amount of money, but they have baby nurses in America, but it's like a prohibitively high, like, you know, one percenter type expense. Um, and, um you know, I think that the people who most need that kind of nurse, almost certainly don't get don't have the money to pay for her here. Mm-hmm. So um I just thought that was like, I was totally floored by that. But then there were other just details where in um, Israel and even in some Orthodox Jewish communities in America, there's these really cool um, maternity hotels, like mm-hmm. fancy hotels where you can go and recover. And, um, you know, I just, I, you know, whether or not having a a lotion from the uh, dead sea or whatever is going to really make a difference to you is, is, you know, a matter of debate, but I think just kind of being treated as a special person and being recognized, not just as like a vessel to be cast aside, but as somebody who's transforming and growing and in some way being born just like a baby is, um, I think is really good and such a far cry from our system where really, you know, moms basically get one like 20 minute visit, maybe two 20 minute postpartum visits if you've had a C-section. Um, and then it's like, sayonara, <laughs> we're not going to be seeing you. And then it's like the, the the all subsequent visits are just about the baby with the pediatrician.
0: Mm. And not about the mother's health. I mean, that's how a lot of things get missed in terms of complications and mental, uh, and emotional exactly. stresses.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And that's a big issue too. A lot of States are trying to change their, um, Medicaid, uh, laws because a lot of times that coverage ends just like for mother's 60 days after birth. And that's just like a really dangerous and fraught time to withdraw support and resources from somebody because it's like, yeah, you're out of the hospital and you might be able to walk around now, but you're still in a kind of turmoil. And, um, you know, moms don't react that well to the withdrawal of material resources. Um, so I, you know, was just reading that, um, a state in the Pacific Northwest is moving towards extending that coverage for a long time. And it's like, yes, that's really good for mom's bodies, but it's also really good for their brains. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh, not many people in the United States could afford the baby nurse that you described that they get in in the Netherlands. <laughs> but I do know a lot of mothers uh, who bring in somebody to be there for their first couple of days or their first couple of weeks. A mother, often, it's their mother or a mother-in-law. Does that serve the same purpose, do you think?
1: Um, yes, I definitely think so. And, um having a, a grandmother is an especially a maternal grandmother is both a not quite uniquely human, but almost uniquely human, um, thing, uh, and something that has really, and it's, it's, it's a, it's a global thing. Like there's really not a lot of common features of mothers across species. I mean, across, across, um, Cultures, human cultures, like we do things in such radically different ways. And what's normal here is a crime there. There's just so much different stuff. There's really the the only thing that we seem to do across the boards is there's this thing called left sided cradling bias where mothers are more likely to carry babies on their left. But after that, there's, there's wait, wait, not really? A lot of,
0: mothers are yeah. more likely to carry babies, even if they're not right handed or left-handed yeah. or
1: whatever. Yeah, it's a it it's regardless of your dominant hand. And it has to do with like how the, the mother, the mother wants to be observing the baby out of her left eye for reasons that have to do with the way that emotions are processed in the brain. So it's, they've actually, it's actually really cute. They've also documented this with walrus moms. And so there's scientists hung out in Russia and like looked at these walrus moms and their calves bobbing off the coast. And there's this tendency for the moms to keep the baby on the left too. It's like a pan mammalian mom thing. So, right. So there's not that much common tissue among, you know, moms though, in terms of our specific behaviors, but the maternal grandma is one of those rare common things where across cultures, um, she plays a huge role in both doing like really specific culturally specific um uh curative birth birth cooking kind of stuff, like (laughs) braising pigs feed in China or making a special lactation soup in in Indonesia or maybe spaghetti and meatballs in America. (laughs) But, um, you know, also just being there to offer what's called social support, which is this really both intangible and super powerful um, kind of buffer against maternal stress. So just if your mom, even if your mom comes and she's not that handy with the you know, with the pig's feet or the meatballs, just her presence there can really be kind of a bomb to your mind. If you have a good relationship with her, I mean, that's the only other thing, like, (laughs) um, there's, there's, there's really, you know, no, uh, having, having a, a mother who you don't have a good relationship with is, is a really a painful thing. And I hadn't realized that Scientists have studied how your relationship with your own mom can sort of impact your maternal brain um, in the way that it perceives cries or, or sees baby faces. And that um, there is this one interesting study that suggested that women who had warmer relationships, who reported warmer relationships with their own mothers had increased um gray matter in certain areas I believe. So that's not to say that they're like smarter, or better, or most amazing, but I just thought it was shocking that there was any kind of material impact. Right. So
0: so is it genetic then? Do you, are there certain aspects of maternal instinct or maternal behavior that get passed down through mothers?
1: Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. I think that there probably are genetic components. I mean, there there definitely are genetic components. But what shocked me was that they're not as profound as I thought, or they're not. It's not the the kind of genetics that I assumed. Um, So maternal behavior does run in families, and there's cycles of abuse and cycles of other things. Like in rat moms, like licking behaviors are passed down in families. And um, to study that, scientists um, in monkeys and rats did cross fostering experiments where they took biological moms and uh, pairs, mom baby pairs, and then swap them. So, you know, one was raising the other's baby. And it turned out that the moms, that the babies grew up to mimic their adoptive mom's um, behaviors more than their biological moms. So Mm -hmm. that suggests that this is not just like a simple, I got your gene (laughs) thing. Mm -hmm. It's more about how the behavior, the behaviors that you receive in infancy from any kind of caregiver can turn on or turn off your genes.
0: Is the maternal instinct itself, though, a genetic thing? Like, are there people out there who maybe lack that gene and they simply can't have the the maternal instinct to care for a baby at all?
1: Well, I mean, there are things that can happen in someone's life, um, like certain kinds of trauma, mm-hmm. that can um, imperil your ability to or modulate, I should say your, your ability to hear a a baby. But I think that that can almost always be um, rescued. Uh, We don't know like, you know, what the mom gene is, or, you know, really it's a million mom genes. It's all these gazillion things working together. Um, Labs have tried to isolate like a gene for a particular kind of receptor um, that you know could this explain you know optimal maternal behavior in certain circumstances? And my understanding is that they really haven't made that much headway with that kind of study. Um, you know, when people say that they don't have a maternal instinct, I think it's a lot of times there are people who haven't had kids yet or haven't been exposed to kids in a really intimate way and so they don't know and so in a way they're right they don't have a maternal instinct but if they were to put themselves in an environment where they had where where that was primed and prompted from them then they would basically grow a maternal instinct
0: yeah finally abigail tucker you so you undertook the research for this book And then you ended up getting pregnant with another like that that hadn't been part of the plan to write a book about motherhood while also going through the entire process over that nine months. That
1: that was not really part of the plan. It became super interesting. And what was neat about it was that I was able to volunteer for some of these um, experiments where you know, you go to a lab and they put you in one of these freaky looking EEG caps and read what's going on with your, in your brain. And while you look at baby pictures and you know, of course, I'm internally fretting that my my brain is giving off these haywire signals or not, you know, not following the party line. But I just I just love doing those experiments. There's another one that I, I didn't technically participate in because um, of logistical reasons, but I, I got to go through like what it would have been like to participate. And it was a, a mom- Therapy experiment. So they're trying to test these different ways that y- we can develop um, protective treatments for for moms. And basically this one, I didn't really know what was going to happen, but it involved me being left alone in a room, listening to a meditation tape, and then like rubbing my enormous belly with Johnson and Johnson's baby, uh, (laughs) baby, uh, lotion. Um, and then like, you know, having all these like, uh, blood pressure cuffs on and stuff. And so I just, thought that was a really special gift to have the chance to go to, to do some of that stuff. And I would urge any listener who lives near a research university to check out and see if you've got a lab like this in your area, because these researchers spend so much time trying to recruit pregnant women for their studies. And the studies are, you know, they're very safe and they're, um, they're, they're really lovely to do. So if you can, do that for science, I would, I would urge you to.
0: Abigail Tucker is a science journalist and the New York Times bestselling author of Mom Genes Inside the New Science of Our Ancient Maternal Instinct. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We've collected some of our favorite interviews from past years. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. It's good to have you with us. Every month, right here in America, there are millions of women and girls who cannot afford the supplies they need to manage their periods. Several years ago, Lynette Medley started delivering pads and tampons discreetly to people in Philadelphia experiencing what's known as period poverty. Now, Medley and her daughter have opened what's believed to be the first crowd crowd-funded menstrual hub in the United States. It's a place where women and girls can come to get supplies, support, and education. It's in Philadelphia. And Lynette Medley is on the line now to talk about her work. Thanks for taking time today. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you for this. Um, I am curious about the deliveries that you've been making, first of all. Uh, You've been at this for a couple of years. How have you found women and girls who need your help with supplies for their periods, given that I mean, there's so much shame and stigma attached to talking publicly about menstruation, let alone asking for supplies.
2: Well, initially it started with, you know, people going through our website and applying for them, but then it really, you know, you know, skyrocketed from people just going on Instagram or DMing us or going on Facebook. So the social media handle has really been the way that people have really been reaching out to us Mm -hmm. and word of mouth. I think once you do one and people tell others about it and also take pictures and post it, um, other people start realizing, Hey, this isn't as shameful as I would think. Because other people have the same issues, people actually will take a picture
0: of themselves with their three month supply of pads or tampons from you and and then post that publicly.
2: That's great. <laughs> yes, it, but it's ironic. The funny thing is it wasn't um, initiated by me. You know, like I like you said earlier, I was like in the evenings or kind of sneaking around giving it to people in privacy. Mm-hmm. And the younger people were like, Miss Lynette, why aren't you posting this on a gram? And I'm like, on the gram? You want to be on the gram? And they were like, yeah, you need to tell. My friends are dealing with it. other people. I'm not the only one. And the only way they would know that this isn't a secret is to post it. So they encouraged me to start taking pictures. And when I would go out, they were posting them and putting on their stories and tagging. Them. Again, I don't, got to, I don't take um, credit for it. It was really the young people.
0: <laughs> wow, wow, and how that I mean that's very hopeful in terms of your message your your mission right which is to um, help eliminate some of the stigma. It's good to know that maybe younger people are a little less um, I don't know i I would rather have like Died than, than have admitted that I menstruated when I was you know a teenager. So so I think that's really inspiring that young people today maybe don't feel quite so stigmatized or ashamed. How did you come to know about this need in your
2: community? Well, like you said, my, um, my my background is that I'm a therapist, you know, a counselor, and I really dealt with issues where we were trying to safeguard people from engaging in high-risk behaviors and really create um, autonomy of their bodies. And from having conversations with young people who were being referred to me, it was uncovered that they were basically um, telling me, you know, Miss Lynette, you're telling me to protect my body and respect my boundaries, you know, but how can I do that when one week out the month I have to engage in whatever I can to be able to get access to the pads and tampons and I almost fell out of my chair and you know I was just like you are kidding like and then even from my own perspective you know I was like are you homeless you know like what's going on because that's all I really heard about and they basically said no I live at home with my parents but we really don't have the money or the finances because public assistance doesn't cover it and at that moment I was just like I really have to do something about this. Oh,
0: So you can't take your um your your debit card for SNAP for food stamps and use that for pads and tampons.
2: No, Medicaid, Medicare, SNAP, WIC, nothing covers it. Oh.
0: And you say that 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 these women and girls were saying, "I have to engage in risky behaviors in order to get what I need to manage my period." Meaning, what exactly? How, what does a woman or girl do if she doesn't have a pad or a tampon for her for her bleeding?
2: Well, some people said they were steal. Some people say they would exchange sexual favors for people. Other people have been engaged in um, human trafficking rings or whatever else. And also one of the things that many people said is they would take birth control pills nonstop.
0: Oh, just to stop the bleeding.
2: Um, Definitely. Uh, uh,
0: is there no community? Is there no place in a community typically for to meet this need? We have food banks, there are diaper banks, there are homeless resource centers. None of those are typically or consistently offering these basic basic supplies.
2: No, they don't. And I think that was the realization that I found out when I was really engaging in these conversations with young people and looking for resources. So initially, again, we started with a bank, you know, and creating a bank in our area. And we were the only bank like that in the tri-state area. And then again, my young people were like, okay, that's cute, Miss Lynette, but how are we going to get the products? We can't get to you. And that's when we started the in-home delivery service. So no, it's not something that's widely um, available in our community. It's not really thought of as a necessity. And I think that's the big issue.
0: Yeah. I mean, any woman knows it's a necessity. <laughs> Once a month, you got to have something. Otherwise, you're literally stuck. Um, how many how many deliveries would you typically do in a week?
2: So before COVID, uh, we were doing about 75 to 80. When COVID hit, we started doing about 275 to 280. We were doing over 50 deliveries a day.
0: Oh, that's a full-time job. How are you pulling this off? How are you funding it?
2: Well, and actually all of our funding comes from crowdfunding and crowdsourcing. We do not have any sponsorships from any American-based menstrual or brands or movements. Um, so this has actually been a crowdfunding issue that we, we started. Um, and it's really been the community donating. It's ironic. I was on a call today and the woman was like, it's ironic that you're saving, you're trying to save your community, but your community is the one who basically is the one that's, that's, that's funding this because it hasn't been thought of as a fundamental issue in the government. I mean, I hate to say we still live in a patriarchal, misogynistic society that anything that have to do with women's bodies are discounted. And they really didn't think of this as an issue.
0: There are uh, a lot of nonprofits, and I know a lot of the companies that make period supplies um, support international efforts that focus on menstrual hygiene. But you're saying that (laughs) that that doesn't seem to there's not the same willingness to fund efforts here in the United States.
2: No, it's not. I mean, just, I mean, really, really think about it. I opened the first menstrual hub in the United States and the only partner we have is Canadian-based partner, which is Diva. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really think that a lot of efforts are getting sent internationally because uh, I just think that the focus is more on that than realizing that when you're dealing with uh, cities like Philadelphia is one of the largest popular cities, you know, in the third rate of poverty. Um, And then the pandemic really uncovered the hardships that people were having. I had some women who used to volunteer with me who now were the people calling saying, I need products because they were dealing with economic hardships from losing wages to getting laid off to unemployment or a partner losing jobs. But no one put in um, any type of services for menstrual hygiene products. Hmm. I guess
0: I wonder if some of those international NGOs look at the United States and say, Well, you guys are a wealthy country, so your government ought to be taking care of this. You know, you don't need nonprofits to be doing this for you.
2: And it's ironic. I think that's the the, the 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 information that people most think about. I think that they think that the United States is so wealthy. But if you really think about it, when we talk about menstrual justice and menstrual care, the United States is way behind the ball. You know, the UK has changed laws, as we know, um, Switzerland changed laws, but the United States is years behind. And you just wonder why. And I think it's really because we don't focus on women's bodies and health the same way we do Um, with other things that they find um, important. What's a law change that would help? I think a law change would, first of all, add it to Medicaid, Mm. add it to Medicaid. And it's ironic that with the CARES Act, with the pandemic, they added the flexible spending when 85 percent of black, brown, disabled women were losing jobs, you know. So Mm. it was just like, wow. And you didn't think to add it to Medicaid. Also, I would say add it to our Title I schools. If we get free lunches, we should get free menstrual products out. That Mm -hmm. can be just the basic of really starting this this conversation about menstrual justice and menstrual equity.
0: And tell us about this menstrual hub that you and your daughter have opened there in Philadelphia. What what happens there? What's your vision?
2: So this menstrual hub, again, is the first one in the um, nation. And it's 2,500 square feet. It's not just about menstrual product distribution, but it's around menstrual wellness. We have a computer lab where people can access resources because again, period poverty isn't a singular issue. It's a multidisciplinary issue and it's affecting populations that don't have Wi-Fi access to computers when all, pro- um, all programs went virtual. We also have therapy offices, we have a reentry office, and we also have a Breonna Taylor safe space room where people can basically get resources, education, information. We have two futons in there, we have a TV, we have toiletries in there. We have everything in there where marginalized populations can escape the, the perils of the streets of Philadelphia, New Jersey, Delaware, or whatever, and engage in just authentic conversations and feel vulnerable to get the information that they need.
0: So you're envisioning this is especially useful as kind of a resource center, day center for people who are in um, are are homeless or or lack stable housing?
2: No, actually, these people actually have housing. Hmm. Um, I think it's more so I think people usually go and most of the time I don't really serve as homeless populations. I serve as people who live at home in poverty Mm -hmm. Um, and people who live at home don't have running water all the time. Electricity, gas. So people come, they can use toilets, they can have fresh underwear, they can just do what they need to go back to school, to go back to work, to basically live in dignity. And it's just something that's been overlooked. Generationally, people have told me that they've been using pieces of rag or, you know, stuffing from stuffed animal or newspaper continuously, because no one thought that this was an issue or no one thought that this was something that needed to be addressed.
0: How much money did you have to raise in order to open this? And how much will it cost to keep it open?
2: Well, it would take about $130,000 for the whole year. We raised $10,000 when I said, I'm going to sign a lease and move in. Um, So right now, I think our GoFundMe up is up to about $70,000. So, uh, But of course, the the costs increase as we see the needs, because originally I didn't think about underwear. So that's something else that we're trying to collect for our community. So it's just little things that we find out that's just been overlooked over and over again um, to help people just feel good about themselves. It's really inspiring work. Lynette Medley, thank you for taking
0: time today. I appreciate it. Good luck. Thank you so much. Lynette Medley is a sexual health educator and co-founder of The Spot Menstrual Hub in Philadelphia. She's also CEO of No More Secrets Mind, Body, Spirit. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Cleon Wall, Ciara Hewlett, and Kyle Raymond produce the show. Find more episodes on the free BYU Radio app. And there is a lot to discover. We've been on the air every weekday since the start of 2015. You'd have to listen nonstop for five months to hear all of the conversations we've had on Top of Mind. And there's a lot of great stuff there too. So episodes like the one you've heard today are a selection of the very best from our vast archive. I hope we've whetted your appetite for more in-depth conversations to come here on Top of Mind. We would love to know what you think of the show. Email us, topofmind at byu.edu. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.